All right, team, welcome to the Man Talk Show. Today we have a bit of a different conversation, uh, but an equally interesting one. I have Sophie Zhang with me today, and we're going to dive deep into how platforms like Facebook, specifically Facebook, but how social media platforms uh, are being used through fake engagement to spread manipulation, to spread false merit, uh, messages, and are really being used in a multitude of ways uh, within the political realm, within the scientific realm to spread misinformation. So Sophie's going to break down for us how this actually functions, how it actually works. And she is able to do that because she is a data scientist and former Facebook employee. And for the years that she worked at Facebook, she was part of the fake engagement team, which was assigned to look for ways in which Facebook was being abused. During her time on the team, she discovered multiple political manipulations and opposition harassment networks, which is an interesting concept all into itself, made to look like authentic human accounts operating in 25 different countries. In her words, there were multiple blatant attempts by foreign national governments to abuse the platform on vast scales to mislead their own citizens, which caused international news on multiple occasions. In 2020, after repeated warnings to management about what was going on, including contacting Facebook Vice President Guy Rosen, she was fired. She was offered a large severance package, but declined since it was attached to a non-disparagement agreement restricting her from uh, openly speaking in public about Facebook's issues and the issues that she discovered. On her final day, she released a 7,800-word memo on Facebook's internal network detailing Facebook's failure to combat political manipulation campaigns. So here we go. This, this is what we were really going to talk about. I wanted to have her on the show because I wanted to start to peel back the layers of how manipulation, coercion, and false information is spread through social media platforms. And really interestingly, uh, you know, obviously, Sophie really focuses in on the, the political sphere, but a lot of this can uh, and is relevant to the scientific space as well. Uh, but what Sophie really details is how fake accounts, fake uh, networks, fake communities, fake groups are created and used to sort of spread misinformation or to spread a very specific narrative and message that a political party wants to uh, embed into the mainstream consciousness. And interestingly enough, um, there's a, a great book called Sapiens and uh, also the, the follow-up to that, which is Homo Deus uh, by Yuval Harare. And in it, he talks about how the, the future of power, the future war that we will be fighting collectively uh, and globally will be the war of narratives or the war of intersubjective reality, that what we will actually really be struggling with is to be able to figure out what's true or not, because uh, people will be using social media platforms to create false narratives, to shape and mold the intersubjective reality. And the inter intersubjective reality is the reality of narrative. It's the, re the reality of story. It's the reality that we all buy into about certain things like vaccines, like a virus, like a political you know, campaign or president. And those narratives can be influenced. They can be warped. They can be shaped. They can be manipulated uh, to 
to have individuals and the collective believe or look at what has happened, look at reality in a very specific way. So we are going to talk about how Facebook is altered and how it's used, what you can look out for to make sure that you are not subject to this type of misinformation politically or scientifically. Uh, And so this is a, a really interesting conversation that I hope you enjoy. Don't forget to share it with somebody that you know will enjoy this conversation. Uh, Don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And please uh, head on over to whatever you're listening to this show on and leave us a rating and a review. It goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. All right. Without any further delay, please welcome Miss Sophie Zhang. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation based off of some of your work and some of this, you know, your story. And so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. So let's start off with the, the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. For, for me, one of the defining moments is pretty obvious. It's when I decided at Facebook that couldn't keep doing it, that it wasn't succeeding in trying to fix the company from within. And so they, after, when they fired me, I was prepared for the moment when I may have to go public. And because I had failed at f- fixing the company from within, I eventually went public as a whistleblower as my only remaining option. It, like It's probably not apparent to the outside, but I really did try my utmost to try and fix things within the system. Because, I mean, institutions are there for a purpose, ultimately. If every time we don't like something, you run to the press, I mean, that's no way to run a society. But in my case, I, I fought to us and from the very beginning to try and fix the problem I found. And when that didn't work, I always escalated one step further. And in retrospect, I was probably headed down this direction from this from the moment I joined Facebook, though I hadn't realized it at the time. I was very naive and silly. I thought that they would hand it over to people. They would take it over and do their job, and they would do mine and get back to my actual job. But it didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm hoping you can give a little bit more context. You know, when you say that you were trying to fix the company from within, I would love for you to give the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the story a little bit more context for like, what problems did you start to identify? And what were you trying to fix within the organization? It was very upfront to the start. I told them, I don't think Facebook is making the road a better place. That's precisely why I want to join the company. If the, if the company was perfect, there would be nothing to improve. I mean, I'd be doing a lot of work and it's already perfect. What's the point? I mean, I'm joining precisely because I want to help fix it. They told me you'd be surprised how many people at Facebook say that. And honestly, I never expected to have as much influence as I ended up happening at Facebook. And they want to qualify what I say there because I was an extraordinarily low-level employee. I was literally one level above a new hire straight out of college. Like people with my job title were a dime a dozen at Facebook. Well, maybe not literally. I mean, Facebook pays ridiculously. but And so the team that I joined was called fake engagement. And by fake, I mean inauthentic accounts, hacked accounts, self-compromised accounts in which people willingly give over their credentials to others. And by engagement, I mean like comments, shares, etc. And so when most people hear this, they immediately think, about foreign interference, troll farms, Russia 2016, Brexit 2016, that's what I've done. But most people are not politicians, and most discussions are not about politics. And so my team was not a political team at all. It was 
a spam team, and by spam I mean like low quality, high volume things that are not that bad individually, but bad in aggregate. Because, I mean, less than 1% of the problem was political. Most of it was a regular person. They go on Twitter, they make a post, they make a tweet, the tweet gets two likes. They also follow their friend on Twitter. Your tweet got 50 likes. What's wrong with me? Why isn't my tweet popular? I also feel follow a celebrity on Twitter. This tweet has a thousand likes. Well, they're a celebrity, but still, I'm, I'm not 25 times less popular than my friend. This is ridiculous. How can I solve this? Like, go on Google and search by Twitter likes, and this will clearly solve my problem for me. Because, of course, the vast promise of social media is that everyone can share their voice with the entire world, potentially. And the vast curse of social media is that most people do not actually get to share their voice with the entire world. They have that potential, but they aren't actually able to do so, which must be dispiriting on multiple levels. And so that was my actual job. But you can also see how my job was defined widely enough that I was able to look at the subset of this that focused on, focused on politics because that was a tiny fraction. It wasn't in my actual job, but it was defined widely enough. The analogy would be like if a policeman was designated to work with theft and he was told by his boss to work on petty theft and purse snatching, but he also decided in his spare time to infiltrate bank robbery organizations and etc. I mean, this is technically in the same purview, but completely not what his boss is ordering him to do. And so when I started looking, I was able to find multiple foreign governments who, who were acting on vast scales to mislead their own citizens with troll farms. Like I, I caught agents of the President of Honduras red-handed that were using fake pages pretending to be real people to say nice things and to boost the President of Honduras. And so I was very naive. I thought, I found this. I would hand it over. They'll take care of it. I mean, it took it took almost a year for Facebook to take down this, even after I caught them red-handed. And after that, they came back almost immediately. In Azerbaijan, it took more than a year. And they're, and, and they're back using the same message right now. And so that's essentially what I mean. I had, by complete accident and chance, found myself as the only expert and only person who cared about a specific facet of extremely bad what at least I considered extremely bad civic and authentic activity, abusive behavior. Everyone agreed that it was terrible. No one was defending it. It was not controversial to say that this was bad. I mean, I mean, I don't think anyone is defending saying that politicians should be able to set up fake accounts to mislead people on a scale. Even when we catch people red-handed and they defend themselves, it's, no, we didn't actually do this. You're lying rather than this is actually okay. But despite the fact that everyone agreed it was bad, it was... I would compare it to the reaction after every mass shooting in the sense that everyone agrees that mass shootings are terrible, but people disagree on what the solution is. They disagree. Some people say we need gun control. Some people are like, we need more guns in armed society. It's a polite society. And some people are like, Congress should put in regulations. Some people are like, we need individual people to solve the problem. And so in the end, it's just thoughts and prayers. Mm. Yeah, well, well said. You know, I think in some ways we are very prone at looking at trying to find a solution without truly understanding what is propagating the issue in the first place, you know, like for mass shootings, for example, it's like what's propagating, what's encouraging mass shootings to continue to happen, you know, what might be causing the mental health issues that are allowing that to happen. And I think what I hear you, both, both the causation of the, the spread of misinformation and the solutions are not really uh, attended to. And so I'm, I'm curious if you can maybe just a little bit more, because when we, when I think when the average person, when the public hears about these ideas or the 
people using social media, Facebook as, as an example, to late uh, the societies or manipulate a vote or manipulate an electoral system, there's a big disconnect between, well, what's happening online and how is it actually impacting it? So is it just through voting, for, like uh, creating uh, false profiles? Like how does it actually work? How does it actually influence? So I'm going to unpack that question. And first, I'm going to start with the common point of confusion. And that's between inauthentic accounts and inauthentic activity and misinformation. Because to the common person, these may sound very similar, but they're actually completely different and unrelated. Because misinformation is when someone says something that is not correct. It's the function completely of what is being said. It doesn't depend on who the person is. If someone says the moon is made out of green cheese, then that's misinformation. It doesn't matter if you're like if you're a random person, a president, a elderly pensioner, a cat pretending to be a person, whatever, it's still misinformation. And so inauthentic accounts, inauthentic activity, this is completely a function of who the person is. It doesn't matter what they are saying and doing. If I set up a hundred fake accounts on Facebook and they tell the and, and they tell the world, cats are adorable, puppies are adorable, kittens are adorable. There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying these. These are completely factual statements and definitely not biased at all. But it's still inauthentic activity because I'm using fake accounts to say it, even though there's nothing wrong with saying it. And I hope that makes sense. And so these two are commonly confused with each other. But in fact, most inauthentic political activity that I've seen is things that would be considered not misinformation, things that fit within the realm of accepted political discussion. And most misinformation that I've seen is spread by actual people, many of whom may believe it themselves. And so I just want to decompress that first to avoid confusion. Now that I've done that, I've lost my train of thought and forgot what the actual question was. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. <clears throat> I think that distinction is all because the difference between the misinformation and the... Um, the unverified or or fake profiles, I think, is quite important because we don't view those things as being separate. I think, we, you know, in, in the mainstream consciousness, we often look at it as like, well, there's a bunch of fake profiles spreading fake information. And what I think you're saying is that there is a difference that oftentimes misinformation is spread by real people and that these fake accounts are created for a different function. So can you speak to that? Like, why do, why do we have all of these bots and fake accounts and these sort of like IT farms that are, that are spreading this information? Well, the purpose, of course, is to mislead people for, for various reasons. And so, again, I'm going to decompress it because because to the average person, innocentic accounts and troll farms, these may sound very similar bot farms, but these are actually very different. Like the word bot is used these days to describe both a real person who, who's acting as a paid troll, who's being paid to, to conduct abusive things online. And also it's literally meaning like computer scripts that are run for specific purposes. Hmm. And these are actually very different in scale and sophistication. And the analogy I'm going to use is that if, say, you decided to replace your podcast by simple computer scripts that would generate automatic podcasts for you, you would be, be able to create a vast amount of podcasts. It would take almost no effort to create a lot of them. But 
most people would not actually listen to the podcast. The podcast would probably be garbage, quite honestly, because, which is the reason you still run this podcast yourself instead of writing a script to do it for you. And that's the analogy I'm using because scripts are very good at making large quantities of behavior and very bad at doing it in a smart, intelligent way, which is why people still have jobs. Why, why I had a job, though I don't anymore. But And so... Most inauthentic activity on Facebook is naturally it's it's naturally scripted because of course getting real people to do something is expensive. You have to pay them for their time and etc. Or they're very motivated or something. And so most scripted activity comes from an activity called self compromise, actually, in which people are motivated to hand over account access to, uh, to to bot farms, and they're motivated to do this by apps that promise them free likes which are provided by other people who signed up for the bot farm. And so this is a major problem in much of the world, especially the global, mostly the global south. It's not as common in the United States and the Western world. Like you might imagine that fake engagement, etc., comes mostly from fake accounts, but literally fake in which there was no actual person behind it ever. But that isn't actually the case. Like at Facebook, my team estimated that something like a fifth a quarter of fake engagers were actual fake accounts and the rest were hacked or self-compromised or similar. And so the, the direct motivation for people, but for the organizers in this case, would be financial. They sell some of the activity online. You can Google by Facebook likes. You will get a lot of 3D sites that all offer questionable promises that their likes are from real people and active people and etc. We think so they did also protest too much. But I mean, ultimately, fake people don't have actual activity. And so the primary use of this activity is mainly vanity. Quite frankly, it's like, like I said, people who go on and try to Google by Facebook like so that they can make themselves seem more popular than their friends. Like even when we tested it ourselves, we knew perfectly well where this was coming from. But it, there was still a dopamine effect to, to sitting there and seeing the likes roll in. Hmm. So so what you're saying is a lot of the use outside of the sort of like political influence that's happening mm-hmm. are people trying to gain some semblance of social. Absolutely. I mean, people care about their social status. They care about their popularity and then they can want to be less popular than their friends. I mean, I think it's a natural human reaction. We want to be liked. Hmm. And so in the political realm, the actual uses of this sort of activity differ a lot. I mean, some of it seems to be more perception gaming, since like simply things like getting more likes. There's also a significant amount of that, that I've seen of persuasion and message shifting. And, and so I'm going to decompress this a bit, because when people hear about this sort of activity, they immediately change to think of persuasion, of convincing people to do something else, of convincing people to have different beliefs, which is certainly a possibility. Like I saw this done, I think, in a way that I believed was effective and showed some political sophistication in India. And, and in that case, these were inauthentic accounts that were acting as if they were supporters of one political party, but saying that they were crossing over to vote for a specific candidate from a different party mm-hmm. because that candidate more exemplified their political views and that sort of thing. And that is one advantage of using this sort of inauthentic activity for persuasion because you can pretend to be anyone who you want and people naturally are more likely to listen to people who they agree with, who they have some sort of affinity with. I mean, whether it's a similar religion, similar political views, similar course in life, etc. 
And if you're a Democrat and someone says, I'm voting for Donald Trump, you're more likely to consider them if they say, I've been a lifelong Democrat. I voted for I voted for Kerry, I voted for Obama, I voted for Henry, now I'm voting for Trump. You are more likely to listen to them and consider what they have to say. I mean, it's the same reason why affinity fraud is sadly, is sadly common, that people often, there are often scams targeting people from similar groups, whether it's from similar churches or minority groups or et cetera, because people are more likely to believe and listen to those who are similar to them. Mm-hmm. And, so that's, and so that's one specific element. Another that I would say is simply perception hacking. And because appearing to be more popular can have political consequences, this is more apparent in countries that have multiple political parties, and so tactical voting is a major consideration. So, for instance, the United Kingdom, there is, of course, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, but there are also multiple other viable parties in the United Kingdom. For instance, the Liberal Democrats, there was the Brexit Party, formerly UKIP Party, there's the Green Party, etc. There's the, there's the Scottish National Party. And so people in the United Kingdom have to make educated, informed decisions about who they want to vote for. Maybe you're a Labour supporter, but Labour is not viable in your district, and so you vote Liberal Democrat instead because you don't want the Tories to win. And so in this case, when there isn't reputable polling out, like perceptions of who's viable can be influenced by social media. Because, I mean, if you see that there are three candidates running your district and one of them has two likes on social media, you think this guy is trash, no one likes him, and that sort of thing. And I do want to I do want to preface I do want to caveat this by saying that this is theoretically speaking. No one has actually tested this. I actually suggested testing it at Facebook, but they said it was too controversial to test. Mm. They didn't want to admit that it would influence electoral outcomes or something like this. Mm. And so this is an element in in many Western democracies. Like even in places that are two two party system, people need to make decisions on who to donate to and to support financially, and and that's based on viability. You're not going to donate to a candidate who you know is going to lose. But I haven't seen as much of this in Western countries. It's very rare. And so in terms of the places that I do see a lot of this activity in countries that are officially democratic, but whose democratic health is questionable. Like, for instance, Azerbaijan is officially a democracy, but in practice, it's so democratic that in 2013, they accidentally released election results a day before the actual election. And so in authoritarian countries, in flawed democracies, in countries that are facing potential revolution, uprisings or coup d'etat, political scientists, social researchers, they, 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 they've written that sometimes popularity doesn't matter so much as the appearance of popularity. And what I mean by that is that in a dictatorship, dissidents face significant difficulties because they need to pretend outwardly that they support the dictatorship, that they support the regime, because otherwise they may be arrested, they may face severe consequences. But at the same time, to organize, to overthrow the regime, they need to find like-minded people who believe similarly. And so this is, of course, very difficult to find people who believe the same as you while you are pretending outwardly and doing your best to pretend to not have those beliefs. And so dictatorships that are widely hated may survive just because people do not actually realize how unpopular the dictatorship is. People do not realize that everyone supports a dictator because in times of potential crisis, in times of popular uprising, suddenly everyone needs to make a choice. Whether you're a governmental official or a soldier or just a regular person, do you support the regime? Are you with the revolution? Do you sit it out? And to choose incorrectly may mean that. So 
in many dictatorships, they survive simply because people are unable to organize. They do not realize they're in the majority. And, and when uprisings happen, it's often because something happens to make people realize they're in the majority. Like, for instance, in Belarus, the rigged election, where most people voted for Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, and there was widely leaked actual results, but the reported results were still rigged to show a victory for Lukashenko. That was the straw that broke the camel's back in Belarus, that convinced people that they were in the majority and that the people were with them. And it's for this reason that in many old Eastern Bloc dictatorships, the old nations of the Warsaw Pact, before the fall of the Soviet Union, dictators would bust in crowds in rallies to support them because they knew if they were given a speech to an empty courtyard, that would be an embarrassment. It would be unthinkable. But of course, to best in a crowd of people, you need to have actual people. There's no way for one person to pretend to be a crowd. I don't even know how that works. The worry idea is funny. But on the internet, one person can pretend to be a crowd themselves. In the Romanian revolution, Nicolae Ceausescu fell when he was given a speech to a besting crowd of supporters. And suddenly, for the first time ever, he was booed to his face, and everything fell silent. Mm. In one moment, he was a feared dictator who roared with an iron fist. In the next, he was just a tired old man trying to regain the attention of the people. These were people who thought to support him, but they turned on him and the revolution became in the streets of Bucharest. The next day, the army joined the revolutionaries. Ceausescu was captured and given a show trial within half a week and executed. And I think that's a dramatic example, but it succinctly illustrates the Warsaw Pact was so intent on showing that they still had the support of the people. But I also want to highlight that Ceausescu was booted to his face by a crowd of his besting supporters. Because, I mean, if you bust in 100,000 people, you can't Mm -hmm. control every one of them. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're really talking about manufacturing almost like manufacturing hype and credibility uh, within the political echelon, right? Within the political ecosystem, specifically within Eastern cultures, you're talking about, you know, sort of pseudo-democratic societies. I'm curious as to why, you know, you said it doesn't happen so much in Western cultures, in the United States, Canada, et cetera. I'm I'm curious about that because I think from the public's perspective, there's, you know, there's a lot of conversation around, to 2016 election, 2020 election being swayed, votes being swayed. And what I really hear you saying is that the people who are most susceptible to this type of coercion, influence, um, whatever label we want to put on this, are generally the people that are on the fence, that aren't really too sure who they'd like to vote for. Is that correct? And, and maybe can you unpack that a little bit? So this, this is speculation. And they really didn't work on this much in Western countries. Mm. And so you've asked a number of questions. First, who, who is most susceptible to this? And I would answer everyone because that's the impact of perception hacking. I mean, we can't, I mean, all of us are influenced by what we see. It may be, in some cases, it may be as simple as who to vote for. It may be just general lifestyle. Do I trust in the system? Do I think the system is rigged? Do I decide to vote or not to vote? even believing things that, that influence others. If I believe, if, for instance, I, I'm a moderate Democrat and I become angry at, at left-wing Democrats, that achieves a political purpose in itself, even if it doesn't convince me to vote one way or another. Hmm. But this is all speculation, and I didn't work on this. The second part that you asked for is, it's just that, because it's true that I see most of this I saw most of this activity in what what's called the global south, in Latin America, in, in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, in South Asia, in Eastern Asia. Not so much in countries like Japan or Australia. I mean, the the definition of West is a bit silly that way. 
And so just unpacking that, I would describe a lot of it as cultural differences and social norms. Because, of course, most of the world is officially a democracy. The United States is a democracy. Brazil is a democracy. India is a democracy. Honduras is a democracy. Azerbaijan is officially a democracy. Even Russia officially has elections. But these are not democracies in the same way. And different activities that are socially acceptable in one country are not in others. Like, I would compare it to the way that, for instance, in the United States, people do not really drive through red lights on a regular basis. It's not a social norm. But if you visit other countries, you might see that everyone takes red lights more as suggestions than actual laws to be obeyed. Because, of course, that's the same with social norms. If it's a law that no one obeys, you think, what's the point? No one, no one else does it. Like, for instance, bicyclists are officially required to stop at stop signs, but most bicyclists do not actually do that. <laughs> I mean... I do, but that's me. Most, most, most don't. If you've ever gone to Vancouver, British Columbia, where where I spent a lot of my time, they just blow right through them. They don't even pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, for instance, jaywalking is illegal in most of the United States, but most people do not actually refrain from jaywalking. Right. And the police aren't going to arrest you for jaywalking unless you, I don't know, cause a 20-car pileup or something like that. Because, I mean, they are, they, the, the rules make this, but they're enforced by social norms, by the opinions of the people and etc. And politics is similar. Hmm. Because, like, in some countries, very sadly, vote buying and that sort of electoral corruption is more common. And that would be unthinkable in the United States, because it, presumably because the people would treat it so much harshly, because there would be a public reaction against it or something like that. Hmm. Maybe in Albania, if a political party is a case of vote buying, they can say, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. Also, we weren't responsible. This person was going on initiative. And in the United States, if, say, a Republican operative were accused of buying votes, I mean, it doesn't matter if the party knew or not, it would still be a giant scandal for the party. Hmm. And that's that's the comparison I want to make, just the public reaction, the public social norms, etc. And as for the reason as to why there's been so much attention in the Western world, in the United States and other areas, I would say that that's simply because that's where people in Western countries are focused. Because, of course, I mean, people are focused on countries that are similar to themselves. I mean, it's sad but true that the average person in the United States, that news media, will take it much more seriously if two people die in Britain from something compared to a dozen people in Bangladesh. That 300,000 Americans are considered more important than 1 billion Indians. And so when you go out and actively look for something, you naturally find more of it. Mm. And the analogy I'm going to use is that I think the United States has officially reported more cases of COVID than India. But I mean, that's because the United States has been better at reporting and looking for cases. I mean, in India, they had so many cases that most of the deaths weren't even recorded. I mean, like naturally, if the better you are at measuring something, the more of it you will find. And so that naturally creates attention of its own. Mm. I would also say that an additional facet is simply that when it comes to inauthentic activity, fake accounts that are trying to influence politics, etc., this is going to sound very obvious as soon as I say it, but it's an important point. The purpose of fake accounts is to not be seen, to pretend to be a real person. And the better you are at not being seen, the fewer people will see you. And so when the average person goes out and looks for people who are trying not to be fake accounts that are trying not to be seen, they don't usually find fake accounts that are trying not to be seen. They find actual regular people who look very strange and suspicious. They find people who are absolutely terrible and incompetent at being fake. 
And sometimes they even find people who are pretending to be fake and they're actually real people, which raises some philosophical <laughs> questions. And this, I mean, this may seem like a silly example, but like while I was at Facebook, I worked on two urgent cases in which people were worried about foreign interference, foreign disinformation, foreign activity in the United States, in the United Kingdom. And we looked into it. And in both cases, they were authentic citizens of those countries that for some reason felt that it would be funny to troll their political opponents by pretending to be badly disguised Russian bots. <laughs> it would be funny if it weren't so utterly sad. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this sort of paranoia effect in which people are worried about something. And so they go out looking for it and they find things that sort of look like it might be, but aren't actually. And so they get more worried. And so, mm. and so yeah, I'm certainly no apologist for Facebook. I hope I've earned that credibility. But even though this might be controversial, I think the average Western person is too concerned with inauthentic accounts, fake accounts, foreign interference in bots. And this has had actual consequences because, for instance, there was the insurrection when the U.S. Capitol was stormed on January 6th. And we know now from Facebook documents that Facebook was reluctant to act on this because they, they thought these people were authentic and talking and organizing about genuinely held beliefs, which is ridiculous because no one would say that a bank robber is somehow fine just because he doesn't wear a mask and announces I'm robbing a bank. He's been authentic, but he's still committing a crime. Like Facebook has 26 community standards of things that you can't do on the platform. Only two of them are about authenticity. One of them is that Facebook officially bans coordinating harmful or criminal activity. But Facebook didn't crack down on organizing storming the U.S. Capitol on its platform because it was too concerned with the idea of whether they were authentic or not and somehow took the idea that they were authentic to mean that they were perfect. And that's what I want to highlight. In some ways, the focus on inauthenticity on foreign interference is fighting the last war. And it meant that Facebook wasn't able to adequately respond to the problems of 2020. I can only wonder four years down the line what new problem Facebook will have failed to respond to. Mm. So is in in Western culture, would you say that it's less about uh, sort of foreign foreign misinformation or fake bots sort of impacting people's perspective versus misinformation being spread by genuine people? So I want to be clear on definitions again, because misinformation and inauthentic accounts are commonly conflated. But like I said, they are two completely separate things. And so people in the United States are especially concerned about inauthentic accounts, often foreign inauthentic accounts. They are too concerned about those, is my personal opinion. I say as someone who is no friend of Facebook, certainly, and although I didn't work about this, I would personally, with regard to the Western world, be much more concerned about misinformation, which is mostly spread by real, actual citizens of this country, often people who genuinely believe it themselves. And like in some cases, like the foreign interference, it's a useful way of pretending to ourselves that our country isn't messed up. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like it's not happening in the family. You know, somebody from outside of the family is causing the problem. It's it's sort of like a deflection away from the actual issue. I think I, you know, I asked that question because I mean, mostly and, and mainly because of this sort of QAnon phenomenon. You know, that this and I don't want to diverge away too, too, too much because I know we're getting more into sort of opinion than experiential wherewithal. But the, the QAnon phenomenon was such that it became very challenging for the average person to understand whether that was information that was 
legitimate information that was being spread by real people, whether it was misinformation being spread by real people, or whether it was misinformation being spread through fake accounts. And it became a little complex for people to to really differentiate between any of those substratas. And so I'm wondering if you can maybe just in a broad sense, give a statement of some sort on the QAnon phenomenon. I'm actually just curious to get your perspective. So I want to caveat this by first saying, this is a question fundamentally about misinformation, conspiracy theories, and polarization. These are topics that I did not personally work on at Facebook. They're not my area of expertise. Mm. I did not personally work on QAnon. I can give you my opinion on it, That's, but it's just an opinion. And I, I mean, I, I picked up stuff from context and working obliquely, and sometimes I got caught in new cases, but it wasn't my focus. And I hope this is making sense. Mm-hmm. But because I want to preface this so that, it, so that people don't assume that I'm the broad expert on this, because I'm not. So there's always been misinformation. There's always been misinformation in politics. The new facet of social media, I would say, in general, is multifold. First, that it allows anyone to go viral, that it allows anyone to share their thoughts with the entire world. And so, because, of course, before, there were much more gatekeepers in terms of people deciding what went public or not. Because, I mean, 50 years ago, no matter how much interest there was in it, I mean, there were certain subjects that the news wouldn't write about. Mm. I mean, for a long time, there was the haze code in television, for, for instance, in which certain content was censored. And so that's such advantages and disadvantages, because, of course, allowing more people to share their voices with the world. I mean, in some, many cases, people are using this positively, but that many minority groups like, like LGBT people are able to connect with each other and to have their voices heard in the way that would be unthinkable 50 years ago. Mm. In many dictatorships, dissidents are able to organize to discuss among themselves when, of course, the state-controlled media would never, never allow them to do so. But, of course, in many cases, the gatekeepers were also necessary because, I mean, everyone has heard the saying, I hope, that with great power comes great responsibility. Today, anyone's post can go viral. And you won't even necessarily be expecting it. Most of the time you post get two likes, then you sit down and make a post and it, and it gets spread around the entire world. Maybe it was a silly in-joke. Maybe it was you'd created a piece of satire for your friends and then it got straight having lost that disclaimer. Hmm. And so, of course, social media has made it much more difficult for that responsibility to be exercised. And so with so much information in the world and not enough attention to understand the information, people naturally defer to trust certain people who they believe and listen to. I mean, oftentimes people share an article without even reading it based on just what the headline, maybe what the person says about it. And so I think that's the overall phenomenon that helps explain why social media has so much misinformation. I mean, because, I mean, of course, not all changes are positive. I mean, it's a fundamentally conservative philosophical idea. There's a famous parable called Chesterton's Fence. And the idea, it's one of the dependent arguments of conservatism. And the idea is that if you see a fence in the middle of the road that's apparently doing nothing, just blocking at some traffic, you can't take that fence down unless you understand precisely why the fence is there in the first place, because someone put it there for a purpose. I mean, that's, and what we've seen with social media is that social media has broken down many existing barriers. It's made the world smaller and more connected and more open, but some of the barriers were there for reasons. I mean, sometimes the fence is there because someone was carrying it and then accidentally tripped and dropped it. And then, and then the purpose was it was accidentally dropped there and it got used to being there and you can't remove it until you know why it's there, but no, no one knows why it's there because it was an accident. So, 
But I mean, I don't think it should be controversial. Like, like I said, this is a fundamentally conservative idea just to say that not all changes are positive. And an additional element is also just the amount of polarization on social media. And that's just because, again, there's more attention, there's more information than attention on social media. Because I think most people have experienced that with social media, like most of the time you post things, they don't get much more attention, but people are attracted to more strong emotional posts, mm-hmm. whether that's posts that contain violence or drama. And so the people are motivated to sensationalize. People are motivated to make more extreme statements. If you urge violence against a group that you like, then people who strongly agree with you will like that more than in a way if you prefaced your argument with more nuance and said, I'm not urging violence, but or whatever. And so with so much, so many voices and so limited attention, the, the voice that gets heard is the one that, that shouts the loudest. Mm that shots the most shocking statements. I mean, if I make a post on Facebook that says the earth is round, this is completely true and no one cares because we all know that it's not shocking or surprising to anyone. And so that's my personal beliefs about the ecosystem that's causing conspiracy theories such as QAnon. And this is, of course, also a component of just the United States political system, the United States political beliefs, etc. Because, of course, there are certain conspiratorial views that have existed in certain levels of U.S. politics for a long time. Like, for instance, 60 years ago, the idea that fluoridated water was a communist conspiracy to poison people or something like that was a real belief. That was a real belief. It was advocated by certain conservative outlets. It's like a joke today by most people, I think. Yeah. I mean, most, I hope. I did meet someone who believed it a long time ago. But a lot of the difference was that, I mean, although people held this belief back then, it wasn't taken seriously. It was essentially blocked by the gatekeepers because when the news media reported it, it was generally court to question it, to criticize it. And today you're able to hear your friend saying, fluoridated water, it's a communist conspiracy. Well, not that, but an analogy. And, and, and then because it's your friend, you, you're more likely to listen to them. And then if you believe it and express to, the, to their friends. And so because, of course, social media has allowed people to find like-minded people and talk to one another. And that's positive for many areas, but it's unfortunately not positive for certain extreme conspiracy theorists yeah it seems it, it seems like and we're, we're gonna have to unfortunately wrap up here soon because if even though i feel like there's a number of topics i'd still like to dig in with you on but it seems as though as the dissemination of power from the, the, the sort of mainstream media the gatekeepers that you talked about right there were you know, in in the 50s or the 40s, there were very few news stations that reported the news or in the 80s or in the 90s, there's a few news stations that reported the news and they largely decide what the narrative is around a very specific topic. And now that seems to be shifting to the populace, right? To people being able to direct and influence the the narrative, whether, you know, kind of influencing intersubjective reality, right? What the story is about a very specific situation or circumstance. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think we're, as a culture, as a society, whether that's in the United States or globally, that we were trying to reconcile with having been given this unknown responsibility passing forward information that we normally weren't, you know, who who could you tell before, right? You could tell your next door neighbor, you could tell your friends, you could only influence a few people. But now if you have hundreds of thousands of people following you on social media, 
you can, with a tweet, with a you know, Facebook post, whatever, you can influence quite a few people and shift their perspective. So, uh, you know, I, I think that we're really starting to come to terms with that, that, that people with large followings in some ways are their own little small media outlet and, and they haven't really understood that yet. So, okay, we talked about a lot of stuff and I think I can almost hear the listener asking the question like, what do I do with this information? What do I need to know? Is there a way for me to help? Or, or what would the sort of most useful approach be in some of these situations? And any, any thoughts that you would like to share about that? So the ultimate problem that we're facing is that the social media companies have extraordinary power and influence, but the problems caused by the social media companies aren't paid by the companies themselves. When the president of Honduras sets up a troll firm to mislead the Honduran citizens, that cost is paid by Honduran society, is paid by Honduran democracy. Facebook doesn't pay those costs. And I mean, because ultimately, I mean, Facebook is a company. Its goal is to make money. It's not in the goal of saving the world out of the goodness of its heart. And so in other areas, like for instance, cigarettes gave people cancer, but people don't expect Philip Morris to pay for the cancer treatments of the customers. The very idea is a bit ludicrous because it's so unexpected. But governments tax cigarette companies, they, they regulate cigarettes, they require people to tell the world the, the consequences, the costs that they do give you cancer. Governmental regulation is much more difficult for social media companies because there's an information asymmetry. Only the social media companies have a good understanding of what's going on that's wrong with their platform. And of course, they have no incentive to fix it unless the outside world does. Like, mm. I wasn't the only one at Facebook who was working on government control firms and et cetera. What I do think I was unique in is that I was going out on my own and looking for them. And most people at Facebook were responding to outside reports. Because, of course, if, if someone from the outside complains about something, that's someone who can go to the New York Times and complain about it if Facebook doesn't respond. And I was officially loyal to the company. Facebook had no pressure to act on what I found. And so ultimately, I think it's important for individuals to pressure the government to ask the Congress people to regulate social media more, to have that information. Like some ideas, for instance, how such government can address the information asymmetry would be, for instance, to require social media companies to provide more information ab about the innocent activity on their platform, to empower independent researchers and fund them to release reports independently on, on what they think are going on on platforms. And this will probably be the most controversial, but governments could do penetration red team style tests in which they send social media experts in controlled circumstances, set up inauthentic manipulation operations on social media, and then release the results of what was caught. So that the government mm. could say, Facebook caught one out of 10 operations, Twitter caught zero out of 10. They're both awful, but Facebook is smartly less awful. With regard to polarization, one idea, for instance, would be for governments to require social media companies to only rank content in the newsfeed based on chronological order rather than doing an ordering of what's popular, which I think is a change that a lot of people have requested already anyways. But these are just ideas, ultimately. And like, I'm not a regulator, I'm not an expert, but in order to fix a problem, you need to know about it. You can't solve a problem until you know it exists. And so right now I'm just trying to fix it, to work on that component to make sure that people understand the problem so that it can potentially be solved. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, for your thoughts and for your experience and, you know, your input in this very, you know, sort of new complex 
situation that many people find themselves in. And, and I think it is it is complex, you know, because when you talk about government regulating social media platforms, there's a whole slew of conundrums that come up within that conversation and, and what people feel is infringing on constitutional rights and et cetera. And so, I mean, you really, it really is a highly politicized issue. But I, I do think there are some very basic things that most people can agree on, like, you know, like the one that you brought forward of ranking content in terms of its timestamp, like when it was actually posted versus its popularity, because that I think that's caused a, a tremendous amount of, of issues. But maybe for a, a different conversation. But thank you so much for joining me, Sophie. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for checking this out. And for everyone that's listening, don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will be interested in this conversation. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Thank you.